Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We will begin our program with uh, introductory remarks by uh, our boss here, our director and CEO, uh, Dr. Ken Weinstein. I invite him. Please. I'm delighted uh, to be here, delighted to welcome everyone uh, to uh, today's uh, conference. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. When Ambassador Darren Bloom was talking about allowing the boss to speak, I thought he was going to turn it over to his uh, <laughs> lovely wife, uh, Gina. But, uh, today's topic is an incredibly important one. The, the issue is obviously, as we all know, children of misery, guns and gangs in Central America. This is uh, a very important issue for us here at Hudson Institute. We follow developments around the globe carefully. Hudson, for those of you who don't know, is an international policy research organization. We believe that global security, prosperity, and the defense of re human rights requires a new American foreign policy, one that places a robust and engaged America at the heart of a vigorous network of allies. We follow developments uh, in Latin America closely uh, for a number of reasons, as, uh, not simply because of the domestic impact that it has upon the United States, but we in the United States are obviously in the midst of a very challenging time right now with the massive immigration inflow of children on our southern border. Part of the reason for that inflow, is, as we know, is uh, the current uh, situation in much of Central America where both economic opportunities, the chance for individual advancement uh, have been hindered uh, significantly, and in part they've been uh, hindered by the growth of uh, the Matras, the uh, youth gangs, the youth criminal gangs that operate both in Central America and increasingly here in the United States and are a challenge uh, to our law enforcement uh, officials. We have an excellent panel to, uh, for this uh, discussion today, and I'm delighted to turn it over to my uh, friend and uh, colleague, Ambassador Jaime Darenbloom. Jaime Darenbloom needs no introduction uh, in Washington. He's the distinguished former ambassador of Costa Rica to the United States. He also needs no introduction in Central America or much of Latin America, since he's widely known uh, for his very articulate uh, <coughs> and uh, insightful articles uh, that appear throughout the region and that have been appearing throughout the region ever since uh, the great challenge uh, that Marx has imposed, uh, particularly to Central America, in the mid to late uh, 1970s and since. And it's with that pleasure, with that uh, bit of introduction, it's my pleasure now to turn it over to Ambassador Darren Bloom. And I want to thank our superb uh, panelists for what will be a very interesting and informative discussion today. Thank you. I thank Dr. Weinstein for his very kind words. And um, there is an old saying to the effect that bad news make the best news. Unfortunately, in recent months, Central America has led with alarming news on children risking their lives attempting to cross alone by themselves the U.S. borders. According to a report written by Danielle Renwick of the Council of Foreign Relations, 
She says that an estimated 63,000 unaccompanied diners, most coming from Central America, across the United States' southern border between October 1, 2013 and July 31, 2014. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has reported and this spike representing nearly twice the number of child migrants who came during the same period the previous year has revived a rancorous national debate on immigration policy. Royal critics of President Barack Obama's proposed immigration reforms and stretched social and legal services that received the migrants. The phenomena comes at a time when overall detentions of undocumented immigrants at the southern border are near historic lows. Unfortunately, uh, the children are only a small visible part of a wider context of misery afflicting in varying degrees the nations in the region. At the Hudson Institute, our Center of Latin American Studies wishes to contribute to the understanding of such critical realities. This conference responds to this urgent effort. We have invited some outstanding and amply known specialists to discuss critical aspects of societies in the isthmus. Their bios appear in the program. We will hear their presentations and then we will proceed to questions. <coughs> we will start with a keynote presentation by Armando Gonzalez, the chief editor of La Nación in Costa Rica, and therefore my boss in the paper for which I write in my country. He is a graduate of Columbia University, and today he is a leading voice in the board <clears throat> of the Inter-American Press Society and other key hemispheric and international organizations as well. And without any further ado, I turn the microphone to Don Armando. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank, you, thank you very much for your interest in this uh, very important issue to our countries and uh, to our countries in the region, and I think also uh, to the United States as well. Uh, when we speak of uh, a major gang problem in Central America, we risk imprecision. There is a gang problem of that nature in the northern triangle of Central America formed by Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Nothing of a similar nature exists in the South, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. There are gangs in those three countries of the Northern Triangle, but they are far, uh, of the Southern Triangle, uh, but they are far from posing an equivalent threat. There were, there were gangs in Central America before the appearance in the 1990s of the now notorious Mara Salvatrucha and Mara Barrio 18 groups. 
Those gangs, those early gangs before the 90s were characterized by dispersion, low levels of violence, lack of institutionalization or unified leadership, weak codes of conduct, and a small number of members. A UN-sponsored study showed as late as 2007 that poor gangs in El Salvador had an estimated average of 2,625 members each while 94 gangs in Panama had, on average, some 15 members in their ranks. Those are the two extremes, but, keep them in mind, but keeping them in mind is useful to interpret the differences between the phenomenon in the Northern Triangle and in the South, where institutionalization uh, has led to uh, larger membership in each gang and the phenomenon of concentration of members in uh, basically two great organizations which, which have their factions uh, but have managed to group uh, large numbers in the tens of thousands of members. Uh, there are, the, in, in the 1980s, Central American gangs resembled those existing in the South today. But in the 1990s, a qualitative transformation began to take place in the Northern Triangle. Gangs in Panama, Costa Rica, and Nicaragua remain to this date in their infancy compared to the maturity achieved by the Northern organizations, whose ramifications cross border, borders surprisingly to reach as far as Spain. The transformation experimented by gangs in the Northern Triangle has much to do with illegal immigration to the United States. In Los Angeles, underprivileged Central American youths absorbed gang culture and acquired the vision and organizational skills necessary to reproduce the phenomenon in their countries of origins once they were deported by immigration authorities in the United States. There was, of course, fertile terrain in Central America where social exclusion, a culture of violence owing much to the great armed conflicts of the, t of the late 20th century, uh, rapid and chaotic urban growth, much of which feeds on the attraction of rural population to the cities due to imbalance, imbalances in development, low levels of community organization, family disintegration, and a growing local drug market add up to create conditions for recruitment and for the subsistence of gangs. So the two things coupled, a fertile ground in Central America for this type of uh, delinquency and a know-how um, developed uh, in uh, the US and uh, imported back to Central America with the de deportation of many of these youths. When those two things came together, uh, the original gangs which we had and which resembled much what we still have in the Southern Triangle uh, began to develop into a completely different thing. The early transformations consisted of greater, or greater organization, adoption of rights of entry, territoriality, and certain codes of conduct, including some sense of protection of the neighborhood. Levels of violence were relatively low, and the group's motivations had more to do with a search for identity and camaraderie. 
1996, in El Salvador, 46% of gang members responded that their main reason to join was to have fun. Ten years later, that percentage had dropped by 10 points. Other motivations, more direct, directly related to criminal activities and their proceeds, have gained importance. Those activities evolved from petty theft and robbery to much more serious and better organized crimes. Extortion, known as protection in mafia terms, and rent in Central American gang jargon, control of local drug markets and paid murders, are, along with arms trafficking and the trafficking of people, have expanded gang business significantly in the past decade. To make room for those new sources of revenue, certain codes were abandoned and others adopted. There is no longer a ban on preying on one's own neighborhood, for it is the local grocer or small business owner who must pay protection. Local public transportation is a major source of rent. On the other hand, greater security concerns stemming from a growing intensity in police response led to the adoption of new rules, including restrictions on drug, on drug consumption by gang members and execution of defectors, another important change of the gang culture of the 1990s when a sense of brotherhood banned internal violence. Two other major transformations point to growing professionalization and danger. In societies where recent armed conflicts have left a huge black market of illegal weapons, gangs have not found it difficult to arm themselves. Knives are no longer the weapon of choice, and the use of semi-automatic arms is not uncommon. At the same time, the average age of gang members has risen, and youths of yesteryear are now hardened professionals. Although recruitment ages are still set at about 15 years old, the average gang member now is around 25. Notwithstanding their notoriety, there are many doubts regarding the number of militants in the gangs of the Northern Triangle of Central America. Some, estimate, some estimates go as high as 60,000 in El Salvador, and that would make the combined forces of gangs larger than the standing army of that country. For all these reasons, governments of the Central American Northern Triangle have spent considerable efforts on facing the problem. The response has been almost exclu exclusively repressive. Tougher laws have gone to the point of criminalizing gang membership in itself, which led to profiling and arbitrary arrests. Gang members have been jailed by the thousands, mm -hmm. and public perception of their contribution to violence has soared <laughs> along with media coverage and the insertion of the problem into the mainstream of political debate. Populist politicians compete to take the tougher stands, stance and produce, once in power, draconian initiatives. The names given to those programs say it all. El Salvador adopted the Strong Hand Plan in 2003, and one year later, after its failure became apparent, designed the Super Strong Hand Plan. Guatemala had the Tornado Plan, and then the Broom Plan, with which it would sweep the problem away. In Honduras, 
there was a less poetically titled Zero Tolerance Plan. Along with the dramatic titles came some very real consequences. In jail, gang members grew closer, and their frequent encounter with the penitentiary system may have eroded its dissuasive capabilities. Younger members took the opportunity of incarceration to learn. It soon became obvious that police forces could not cope with the problem, and the armies were invited to help. In Central America, that decision has deep connotations. Vigilante groups have also sprouted and, there are, and, and are thought to be responsible for many killings, particularly in Honduras and Guatemala. The extreme legal measures often went beyond the limits drawn by, the res by respect of basic rights and the emerging constitutional order in the countries of the Northern Triangle weakened as a result of constant abuse. Gangs responded by tightening their internal security and adopting measures designed to withstand the siege. They did. Not one of the drastic repression programs had success, and there is now a calling for a more balanced approach. Along with police efforts, it is necessary to attack the roots of the problem, which have to do with insertion into society. Necessary solutions go far beyond providing recreational and sport opportunities to idle youth. Programs dedicated to keeping them in school and facilitating employment, as well as strengthening community and family ties, may be the solution where strong and super strong hands have failed. Initiatives of that more preventive nature have been common in the South, including Nicaragua, which may come as a surprise to some of you, given the authoritarian nation of that regime in many ways, a mockery of democracy. It turns out that, Nicara that Nicaragua has successful programs for the preven prevention of crime, and its police has a working youth affairs department. In contrast to strong-hand approaches, they have a plan titled Attention to Juvenile Delinquency. Panama and Costa Rica have similar programs. We may debate if those approaches have prevented gang culture from growing in the South, or if they are a luxury of countries where gang culture simply did not grow. However, there is little room to debate if the strong hand approach has been successful. Failure is evident. To make room for less repressive possibilities, it is necessary to better quantify the true impact of gangs on criminality in the Northern Triangle. It is certainly no small matter. Gang wars, intra-gang violence, and repressive responses by authorities and vigilantes cause a growing number of innocent victims. New criminal activities, mainly extortion and local drug trafficking, expand the number of victims outside the gangs and make their existence unbearable to ordinary citizens. On the other hand, there are very there are other very important actors in Central American violence, especially the Mexican drug cartels. Northern Triangle gangs have not been able to articulate the operational capabilities that would allow them to enter the international drug market. This marks an enormous difference with traditional organized crime. Relationships between gangs and organized crime are limited 
to cooperation in specific areas. It is more transactional than organic. It is possible that this too will evolve. That is all the more reason to reconsider strategies that have failed and experiment with new ones while there is time. But time to prevent the merger between gangs and organized crime may be running out. Recently in Honduras, uh, police said that the Zeta uh, drug trafficking cartel of Mexico, which also operates in the, in the Northern Triangle of Central America, especially Guatemala and Honduras, the Honduras police said that they were arming the Honduran Maras. So uh, that is something to be very concerned about. Uh, I'm sorry about a certain degree of clumsiness in my expression in English. I, uh, I don't get a chance to practice it often. So forgive me. You're doing very well. <laughs> Thank very you. Well. <laughs> but Statistics make it impossible to, uh, bad statistics make it impossible to ascertain how much of the violence in the Northern Triangle is due to gangs and how much of it has different sources. Arrest figures are not a good indicator because many gang members have been detained on charges of illicit association, resistance to arrest, and disorderly <laughs> conduct. Although they are contrary to the law, especially the law written and interpreted in its most most severe possibilities, those conducts are not in themselves violent. However, arrest statistics constructed in this fashion have been used by populist politicians to magnify alarm and justify draconian measures, which, again, have failed to produce the desired results. A better estimate of the dimensions of the problem is the dramatic decline in El Salvador's murder rate since the government helped broker a truce between the Mara Salvatrucha and the Mara Barrio 18 in March 2012. The, that year, the murder rate dropped from 69.2 per 100,000 to 41.2 and continued to fall to as low as 26 per 100,000 by some estimates. The arrangement, however, is not as favorable as it looks at first glance. First of all, negotiations, negotiations included prison privileges for gang leaders who were at that moment detained. Uh, the truth, the truth, truth is among the gangs, not with society, and delinquency continues. For that reason, the state attorney has called it hypocritical. The government denies having negotiated and says its role was only to facilitate a process begun by the church and by a former guerrilla leader who was close to the government uh, at that moment, 2012. But uh, the government has been careful uh, not to admit having directly negotiated and has justified the privileges or the, um, the advantages suddenly bestowed upon the gang leaders in jail by saying that the law required them to move them to facilities which were a bit more open because they had been kept in uh, maximum security 
uh, far longer than the law allowed them to keep them. So that's how they have justified uh, um, this, uh, uh, this negotiation, which they say was not a negotiation. The government only facilitated, and the truce was promoted by the church and by this former guerrilla leader. Um, there is significant evidence that, in effect, the government did intervene. And, well, it did get these results. Murder, murder rates dropped significantly, but, again, the truce was not with society. Um, in February, uh, the truce began to crack. War between two factions of the M18 group uh, um, began to uh, um, cause uh, murders to, to rise again. Gang leaders held a press conference to deny the crack in the truce, but murder rates have been going up very quickly. I, on my way up here from Costa Rica, I had a stopover in El Salvador, and the flight attendants, when we were about to take off for Washington, gave out Salvadoran newspapers. Uh, one of them had the news that this last weekend there had been 25 murders. Two of them, two of them, in, in a country as the size of El Salvador, that, that puts them back at the old murder rate, which is among the highest in the world. Honduras, by the way, is the highest in the world at 86 and a half per 100,000. Uh, so the paper had said that last weekend, uh, 25 murders had occurred. Two of them of bus drivers, which takes us back to the problem I was uh, pointing out about the rent and the transportation being one of the primary victims of the whole rent uh, racket, which is the, the protection racket. So uh, that seems to be where we are right now after all of this happening. The new president of El Salvador, Sanchez Irén, has said that his government will implement what he calls the intelligent hand, vis-a-vis -vis the strong hands of the past. Um, in, in Guatemala, there has been some contradiction. Um, the president has said that he doesn't um, discard the possibility of negotiating or talking to the gangs, uh, his minister of justice visited El Salvador to see what the experience had been there and said something to the same effect. But political reaction with, within Guatemala was very strong, and uh, the government um, had to clarify that it never said what apparently it said. <laughs> um, it is a government presided by a former military officer who came in offering strong hand in security matters. And uh, after these um, contradictions, um, uh, it is back where it started uh, with the strong hand approach. In Honduras, uh, President Hernandez and his predecessor agreed on uh, firing the uh, chief of police on the se in December, um, who's, who was nicknamed the Tiger, and uh, was um, 
a poster child for the strong arm approach, for the strong hand approach. Uh, but his firing does not indicate any change in policy. It is more a product of international pressure, mainly that of the, of the United States, uh, because the Tiger was um, suspected of participating in or ordering summary executions. So that's the super, super strong hand. And uh, his firing doesn't mean the policy has changed. President Hernandez has insisted on the strong hand approach, which is already more than a decade old and has given us the results that we have today. Gangs in the Northern Triangle are a huge problem, but it is hard to know how huge. Their significance should not block the view of other important actors in these tragically violent societies, particularly the drug cartels. Repressive policies have not been successful tools in the efforts to eradicate gangs, and the factors that make Central America fertile grounds for their development have been left unaltered. A different approach exists in the South. Although establishing a cause-effect relationship between that approach and the absence of a significant gang problem requires more analysis, the failure of exclusively repressive policies is evident. A more balanced policy, public policy is necessary, and countries in the region have begun to realize this. Cooperating nations, such as the United States, have also reconsidered. The Medida Plan offered help for strengthening police capabilities, but as time has passed, new USAID programs focus on prevention. It is worth a try. Thank you very much. Thank you, Armando. That was a very um, enlightening presentation. Now we have uh, our good and old friend, Ewan Ellis, who is a professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. I doubt there is anybody, and I would challenge that, with the knowledge uh, of, the, of the economies of the Western Hemisphere and then the links with uh, some uh, countries that uh, are gaining momentum in the papers, uh, China, Iran, uh, India, Russia, etc. He has published more than 70 works and has presented his research in more than 25 countries. Let's uh, welcome Dr. Ellis. Before I begin, I want to uh, thank uh, um, Dr. Weinstein, Ambassador Derenblum, um, and the Hudson Institute for, for having me here. It's a true honor. Uh, I'm uh, always reminded when I have the opportunity to come here and speak uh, just what an impressive institution with a uh, impressive ability to, to draw crowds both uh, here in this room and, and uh, with respect to uh, um, the, the uh, work on the internet. So uh, thank you very much for, for the invitation. Um, the kind words, I'll settle that with you later. 
<laughs> but uh, um, in the, the past five years, um, I've uh, had the, uh, the pleasure to work at an institution called the uh, William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies, where we engage with our security partners on issues of importance to the region, including uh, work in El Salvador and, and, uh, and, uh, and Honduras, as well as other parts of Central America, engaging with our regional security partners on issues uh, such as the Maras, um, as well as uh, having published various articles uh, on that and uh, uh, giving various presentations to help prepare our own armed forces for, for missions in, in the region. So um, uh, departing a little bit from uh, some of the economic focus that you uh, are familiar with my, my other works, um, some of my comments today are going to be based on, on those experiences, but uh, very important for me to emphasize that uh, nothing that I say today um, in any way represents uh, the institution for which I'm currently employed, nor in any way the U.S. government. My often very frank opinions are completely my own. Um, so with that disclaimer, um, let me uh, start, and I'm, I'm going to go very uh, briefly, uh, very quickly, um, very difficult to uh, follow uh, Armando because I, I think uh, just about all of the key points uh, outlining uh, the real nature of, of the challenges uh, he, he has covered, but uh, I'll try to say some things uh, where, where possible uh, just in the interest of, uh, of, um, of uh, variar. Um, I'll, uh, I'll uh, try to emphasize a few uh, subtle differences of, of opinion that I, I may have. Um, to begin with, uh, obviously, uh, um, it's often said that uh, Central America draws the attention when the reverberations occur here in Washington. And indeed, when you go back to 2004, um, many people point out that really the awareness on Capitol Hill of the Mata problem occurred because we started to realize that there were members of Mata Salvatrucha y Barrio 18 here in the neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., and that's something that our congressmen uh, began to take note of. Um, in much of the same way, the crisis of the children um, with, you know, by varying estimates of 52,000, 60,000, perhaps more than 60,000 uh, children this year coming across uh, the borders, um, that has gotten political attention in Washington, D.C. But it also emphasizes something that I think is extremely important for U.S. policymakers uh, to take into consideration, and that is that for the United States, um, Central America and Latin America is not a foreign policy issue. It is what uh, an esteemed colleague called an intermestic issue. Um, the region for us is as much a domestic politics issue as it is a foreign policy issue. And so I see that we that is playing out right now. Um, I think Armando covered some of the details with respect to the magnitude of the gang problem by some estimates, 70,000 or more gang members in just the Northern Triangle states, et cetera. Um, obviously, the high rates of, uh, of violence uh, despite the fact that, ironically, we find the rates are going up significantly in El Salvador with the collapse of the gang truce, um, and um, at least uh, the leadership, uh, um, uh, General Perez Molina in, in Guatemala um, and, uh, and uh, President Hernandez um, in uh, Honduras uh, claiming successes for the recent 10 to 20 percent declines in the murder rates in, in, in those countries. Um, in general, however, there is an acceptance of the relationship between the notion that something about the gang violence um, that has been generated has a relationship to um, the, uh, the exodus of, of, of people, including exodus of, of children that, that we've seen. Um, clearly, this is not entirely new. Um, the rate of exodus of, of, from Central America has been going on for quite some time. Um, however, um, this year, as Armando pointed out, uh, we're seeing about twice as many um, children specifically coming across as we did before. Hmm. And uh, in general, um, if we look at the rates uh, going back to just 2011, um, we're looking at about seven to eight times um, the number of people coming across this year than just three years ago. So clearly something is happening. Now, the puzzle is that um, there has been no significant change in U.S. law yet 
although some people would suggest that the anticipation of changes in U.S. law may have contributed. Um, clearly, there has been um, no significant increase in violence, with the exception of what we've seen in the past couple months in El Salvador. But that really um, has begun to occur after some of the, uh, the influx of children. Um, but there are mechanisms, and the mechanisms have to do with uh, a number of complex factors. Uh, parents uh, not wanting their children to be recruited by the gangs, parents fearing for their child, children's lives, parents themselves coming to the United States to work, leaving those children um, vulnerable, um, oftentimes with aunts and uncles and, and, and grandparents uh, where they have to face the, the mean streets of, uh, of, of these, uh, um, th these countries, oftentimes with a minimum of protection and adult supervision, um, et cetera, et cetera, in including the so-called the word of mouth um, and the economic role that uh, parents who send remittances oftentimes, one of the core desires that they have as parents is to be able to bring their children to a place that they regard as, as much safer, however uh, difficult their uh, current uh, undocumented status uh, may, may, may be. So the motivations are clearly relatively complex, but, uh, um, but behind that, it's important to whatever the exact relationship is, to not lose track and really to take advantage of the degree to which this is highlighting a very, very grave problem um, in Central America. Um, I, I think, again, Armando highlighted much of the, the history, so I'm not going to belabor the issue, but I just wanted to highlight a few, a few things. Um, first of all is the fact that in many ways, um, it was in part the lack of coordination um, between U.S. immigration policy and our relationship with, with Central America that contributed to this problem. In many ways, um, the, uh, the uh, Salvadorans the, the, um, and, and others came to the United States uh, in places like the, some of the poor districts, the Rampart District of Los Angeles, in the 1980s, 1990s, fleeing the El Salvadoran Civil War, fleeing the wars of the region. Um, were in difficult situations. Um, many of the, the children of those refugees fell into, uh, in, in, into crime. But then in the late 1990s, and especially from about 2000 to 2004, when we changed our immigration policy and began to deport um, undocumented people, especially those with prior arrest records, um, that began to send a wave of people who had been socialized into the gang culture, especially in Los Angeles, back to the Central American nations. Um, and at that time, perhaps one of the unfortunate oversights was putting, by some estimates, uh, 20,000 people with uh, you know, arrest records in a situation where they had very few actual ties, having left there when they were very young children, if, if, if at all, um, going back to uh, a situation in, in which uh, really they, they reverted to the gang culture that they had learned in, in Los Angeles. Um, and in many ways, uh, the, um, the soft power of the United States proved enormously effective. Um, essentially, the ways in which the Salvadoran gangs, again, um, especially um, um, Barrio 18 and, and Mara Salvatrucha, had evolved in Los Angeles, um, was enormously popular in Salvador. It was the glamour of the United States. It was no longer the marijuana that the gangs used to use. It was now cocaine. It was no longer the little handmade guns and knives. It was now, you know, sometimes large caliber weapons. Um, it was the gangster rap, et cetera. Um, and essentially, these groups transplanted, very highly successful, um, really took over, grew like wildfire in Central America. And so within a few years, 2002, 2003, you had um, the recognition that this had become a major social problem. And again, as Armando pointed out, the first reactions proved very short-sighted. Um, mano dura, super mano dura. Um, however, 
I can also say that having worked with the Salvadorians, having worked with the Hondurans, there is a relatively deep-seated recognition of the need to focus on the problem in an integrated fashion. Um, one of the problems is that there's just no money to do that. In But, it, but talk to virtually any civil, civil, um, civil administrator, politician, police official, military official um, in the nations of the Northern Triangle, um, and you will get a surprisingly detailed understanding nuance of, uh, of the difficult problems. And one of the things I wanted to really highlight with respect to those problems um, is the way in which they are interrelated. Um, and so this is uh, not meant to scare anybody, uh, but uh, um, let me uh, just illustrate a few points here. Let me see if this actually, see if we've got a ah, laser pointer. Um, when we say, okay, and I'm just gonna, I'm not going to go through the whole diagram, but when we talk about crime and violence, and forgive me, it's, it's in Spanish. I was too lazy this morning to, to actually translate it back. Um, but uh, you can say to many, in, in, to much extent, it's the dangerous streets of Central America is one of the factors that, that lead the at-risk youth to join the, the criminal gangs. And yet it's those youth, um, the cliques, who need to sustain themselves through extortion, robbery, petty theft, et cetera, um, that contribute to, not completely, but contribute to the crime and violence. Um, in the same sense, that crime and violence leads to the breakdown of families and oftentimes leads to um, this wet wave of immigration. And yet, ironically, um, it's the wave of immigration, the fathers and often later the mothers and often later other family members coming to the United States, um, leaving the youth in the hands of los tías, las tías, um, los abuelas, o sea, leaving the youth at risk that farther break down family integrity that contributes even more to the at-risk youth. Um, and indeed, of course, the crime and violence, by some estimates, almost 80% of all small businesses, the core of the economic machinery in these countries, um, are subject to extortion, um, particularly the transportation system. Uh, difficult to find a small bus operator who's not being extorted in El Salvador or elsewhere. Um, and so there's the destruction of economic opportunity, which farther contributes to immigration, which farther contributes to, to youth fleeing the country. Even the wave of immigration itself, when you take a look at, for example, evidence that uh, groups such as Marasal Trucha are operating now in southern Mexico and Chiapas and other places, you find that um, even those waves of immigrants, because what do immigrants typically <coughs> do? They oftentimes carry cash with them. Um, they often carry valuable belongings with them. Um, they are in a highly at-risk situation when they're in transit from Central America through Mexico, etc. Um, and so both the, the pay to the coyotes to take them and becoming easy prey for those who would rob and, and otherwise extort them um, farther feeds into the dynamic. Um, and again, I think I've made the point, but this is a very, very pernicious, difficult-to-break cycle. Going a little bit farther also, um, we have to recognize that there are other contributing factors. Um, you know, One, obviously, is the um, role that um, the emergence of Central American land routes for narco-trafficking have played. And this is not just the commonly known big Mexican gangs, the Sinaloa Cartel, Caballeros Templares, um, Los Zetas, etc. Um, oftentimes, it's overlooked that regional and, and national homegrown groups. So, for example, in El Salvador, um, you've got groups like the, the Texas Cartel, um, Los Perones. Um, in other uh, countries, you've got uh, Los Quicheros, the, um, the Lorenzana family, etc. Um, in many cases, uh, 
the drugs flowing through um, create opportunities for the Mares, oftentimes less well organized, to act as um, either basically hired muscle, sometimes assassins, um, sometimes um, carriers of, of the drugs, uh, traffic which, which are referred to as, as, as mulas, um, and oftentimes um, actually distributing and, and getting the compensation from the drugs from the local market, which has actually contributed to an often overlooked increasing local drug consumption problem in Central America, um, contributing to the already difficult uh, situation. Um, the, uh, the other situation is also to recognize that the judicial system is overwhelmed. And so when we come back to Armando's very good point, what really was the problem with Mano Dura? Um, without oversimplifying it, some of the problems with Mano Dura had to do with the fact that this was a quick solution imposed with a lack of resources without coordinating all aspects of, uh, of the problem. And so you start arresting anybody with tattoos, and the first problem is that nobody is going to testify against them because the people in the neighborhoods where they live are intimidated by the gangs who control the neighborhoods. Um, if they arrest them, oftentimes the police were under capacity. The police did not have the technical means to make the cases stick. Um, getting witnesses to come forward in in cases where you arrest uh, uh, Amara, very difficult when um, the people who are testifying live in the same neighborhood as the Maras who dominate it. Um, if you can get them into jail, very quickly the, the Salvadoran, Honduran, and, and now Guatemalan jails um, became basically incubators for Mara recruitment because um, – and indeed, it's ironic. In Honduras, they did not separate the Maras into separate jails. In El Salvador, they did. But the result had a similar problem in, in both cases. Um, the Maras very quickly organized in the jails. Um, and uh, basically, if you weren't a Mara going into the jail, in order to survive in the system that was created with a weak control, um, you had to essentially become a Mara in the jail. Um, the weak control also allowed that leaders inside of the jails, um, through the smuggling of cell phones, et cetera, not only could consolidate the organization, but also could begin to um, could, could, could begin to actually do extortion. I think in, in Guatemala there was an estimate that something like 74% of all extortion threats um, in Guatemala actually came from inside jails. So, uh, so you begin to see the extent of the problem. Um, other things that are important to, to mention, um, one of the issues is the fact that the Maras are an evolving problem. Uh, I remember in 2004, um, a, a distinguished uh, former uh, police commissioner in Honduras uh, actually made this comment uh, that uh, the Maras are evolving. And um, here, 10 years later, they're still evolving. One thing that you see is that that aging of the Maras that Armando spoke of, um, you know, as you get to the second and third generation of the Maras, of which very little is known, um, you have Maras actually sending gang members to school um, deliberately to be accountants, deliberately to be um, lawyers, <coughs> because um, to survive as a gang, what do you need over the long term? You need somebody to defend you. You need somebody to get your members out of jail. You need somebody to you know, keep track of, of where all the money is coming from and going to. Um, and indeed, we've actually seen cases where the Maras are um, deliberately infiltrating the police organizations. Um, and uh, although it's highly denied, um, some suggestions that even some aspects of the military, that uh, there are, are some Maras who are trying to, to get into the, the armed forces. And so um, what you're seeing is 
an organization or organizations that are becoming more organized, more sophisticated. Um, and yet, the actual level of organization is either greatly over-exaggerated or under-exaggerated. Um, over-exaggerated because, um, by comparison to global organizations like the Cali and Medellin cartels in the battle days of the 90s in Colombia, or even the Mexican uh, cartels, transnational criminal organizations now, um, in terms of global reach and organizational coordination, um, you find very limited evidence to say that the Maras are there. What you do find, however, is that within some cliques of the Maras, there is a clear coordination, a clear coordination between members in U.S. cities and in cities in, um, in, in, the, um, in, in El Salvador or Honduras, et cetera. Um, and so you do find evidence, and, and indeed uh, we find recognition that there are some transnational chains. So, for example, in 2012, um, you had a somewhat controversial declaration uh, by, um, by, by the U.S. government that uh, Maracela Trucha had become a transnational criminal organization subject to, to certain laws. While that's debated, I think it's a clear recognition that there is some transnationality, but um, that uh, you know, some does not mean complete transnationality. Um, I'll skip over the majority of the details, but just a few uh, quick comments um, in El Salvador. Um, what we're actually seeing is that uh, in 2011, 2012, a lot of talk about the truce. The murder rate, as Armando alluded to, had uh, fallen uh, by 60%, in some cases by, by more. Um, but this year, the truce began to fall apart. Um, and, and now, as of about June, you're actually seeing the murder rates higher than they were before, um, by some estimates, 70 to 77% increase in murder rates. Some people say that the murders never fully went down, but in order to preserve the image of truce, um, some of the people killed were put in mass graves, etc. Um, on the other side, you, uh, you also see that, um, that there was a truce demonstration effect. And so, for example, there had been a truce in 2011 in Belize, um, largely regarded as having failed when the government didn't have the money to do its part. Um, but uh, with the success of the Salvadorian truce, there was even some tentative steps toward a truce um, between the Mares in, in Honduras, um, although, um, although in, in many ways uh, that's been discredited. Uh, some evidence now, some talk um, under the new Salvadoran uh, government, uh, the former uh, FMLN uh, uh, leader and, and, and now President Sanchez Seren, um, that uh, indicating that uh, Whereas the previous government of President Funes had been criticized um, for having gotten involved in the peace process uh, or, or the, the, the truce process, um, Sanchez Seren saying that, well, we're not going to get involved, um, and indeed uh, some steps to actually prosecute or at least investigate um, the uh, um, Father Tonio, um, the, the, uh, the Catholic priest who had, who had uh, been involved in the process and perhaps uh, others. So a clear indication that at least this Salvadoran government is going to stay away from the truce process. But then again, the previous Salvadoran government also said that officially it, it wasn't involved. So uh, stay tuned on that. Um, I'll, uh, um, in the interest of time, uh, I'll skip over the details on Guatemala, but just uh, suffice it to say that um, many of the same dynamics are at play some of the same challenges with uh, prison overcrowding, um, some of the same difficulties with extortion, some of the same difficulties with high-level corruptions, and also some of the same links not only with the Mexican cartels but also with some of the what we call the transportistas or some of the criminal families. Again, um, in the case of Guatemalan case, it's not the, the Perones or the Texas cartel, but here it's a, a Leon family, Lorenzana family, um, Mendoza family, etc. Et um, similar thing in Honduras. Um, Again, um, you find the elements, uh, the transportistas, you find the same elements with police overcrowding. Um, 
some differences in, in Honduras. Again, um, there is not the separation of the prisons that, um, that the, the groups in the prisons that you, that you saw, but, but clearly some, some, some complications. Um, and uh, perhaps uh, even more concerns in Honduras and elsewhere with uh, police corruption, although, uh, of course, uh, uh, the U.S. working very hard right now trying uh, through uh, technical means and others to, to try to address that through uh, programs, including programs that are associated with uh, uh, Plan Merida. Um, okay, well, um, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the quick overview, but I'll be very happy in the interest of the time of the other speakers to, uh, um, to entertain more questions on that uh, when we get to the Q&A period. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, that's my story. Thank you very much, Evan. Uh, we'll have now the uh, privilege of listening to Selina Realuyu, who is a professor at the William Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies at the National Defense University. She knows very well Latin America. She has a detailed knowledge of uh, the cycles in uh, different social aspects of, the, of our countries. And uh, as in previous occasions, I'm sure it's gonna be a pleasure to listen to her this afternoon. Selena. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be back here at Hudson one more time. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Darren Bloom. And what I'm going to try to do today is we've actually had a great layout of what the threat is and then more importantly what's happening, particularly in Central America. What I was asked to do by Ambassador Darren Bloom was talk about the national security implications here in the United States and more importantly how these problems that might be what we call an away game or actually have a lot to do with our society and our security here in the United States. So I spent the last uh, couple of years now actually uh, teaching and taking a look at a concept called the convergence of illicit networks. And we see <coughs> illicit networks include terrorist groups, criminal groups, gangs, and facilitators. And what we're seeing is although these illicit activities, whether it's drug trafficking, contraband, prostitution, um, human trafficking, have been with us since basically the ages of the Greeks and Romans, what we're seeing with globalization um, is actually a velocity and a magnitude on a scale that we have never been actually prepared for. And if we think about the actual missions of every government, including the U.S., as well as our partners throughout the hemisphere, the government is actually responsible for providing security for its population, its territory, and sovereignty, promoting economic opportunity or prosperity. The third one is a sense of society, that I belong in terms of an affiliation to my country, to my community, to my religion, or my ethnicity. Then lastly, governance, that the government actually respects and reflects the will of the people. What we're seeing is that all of these illicit activities with globalization is actually threatening the ability of nations big and small to actually provide these four basic tenets or kind of missions or contracts that governments have uh, with their uh, constituents. Even here in the U.S., people actually argue that we're challenged um, in terms of providing all four of those uh, kind of missions. What we're seeing then, too, is... Um, this idea of convergence. Before we classically thought about terrorists who have political ambitions to actually overthrow states and put themselves in places, a good example in the region has always been the FARC in Colombia, right? The narco-insurgency. Or criminal groups, which are kind of associated with the Mexican cartels. But what we're seeing is as they are actually taking advantage of illicit activities, to either dominate resources, dominate territory, or secure financing, 
we're seeing the role of something called facilitators. And these are these people who kind of operate in this gray area where they provide services to terrorist groups and criminal groups. And we're seeing this particularly now in the news. It's a very uncertain time that we live in on the eve of 9-11 here today where we've seen this convergence of terror crime networks around the world. We're now in the 13th year almost of our engagement in Afghanistan where you've actually seen a very interesting uh, convergence of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and something called the Haqqani Network, where they actually take advantage of a narco uh, economy that's providing heroin and opium around the world to fuel their political aspirations. Next door, and not too far away in the same region of, uh, of, the, of that part of the world, it's front and center. Tonight the president will give a speech at 9 o'clock in terms of how to actually deal with ISIS. By the way, ISIS stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, but they've actually rebranded themselves because they have greater aspirations. They're now called the Islamic State. And a lot of their origins, even though they were inspired by al-Qaeda, was actually through petty crime, that they actually gained um, a lot of the supports through extortion, human trafficking, kidnapping, and the sale of actually antiquities in Iraq to actually garner strength and build their actual resources to become really a terrorist army. We also have seen um, al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb that uses kidnapping for ransom. And sadly, we saw in the case of the two journalists who were beheaded, people actually are arguing that perhaps they were actually sold to terrorists um, in order to actually gain kidnap for ransom, but among these types of groups. And then more importantly, you've heard about uh, al-Shabaab in the Horn of Africa, Boko Haram, which was responsible for the largest kidnapping of young girls, 276 young girls from a, 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 a Christian private school, and we still don't know where they are. Then in our neighborhood, we have uh, in this hemisphere the FARC and uh, Shiny Path or Sendero Luminoso that took advantage of cocaine trafficking in order to support themselves financially and more importantly territorially to dominate and present true national security threats to those countries. And then lately, too, we've actually been seeing a lot more activity of Hezbollah and Iran um, in our hemisphere. And as you know, Hezbollah is still one of the terrorist groups on the U.S. uh, foreign terrorist organization list. Um, whose uh, primary goal is uh, basically to negate the existence of the state of Israel and has actually claimed the United States and the West as also their declared enemies. And for a little footnote, Hezbollah is actually the ones who are the foreign fighters of Assad in Syria against the uh, civilian population in Syria. So what you're seeing is a very uncertain and more importantly unstable world where these groups that traditionally had not really collaborated, terrorist groups and criminal groups, are actually finding and forging common ground common tactics and common activities, which we can probably all agree are a threat to our national security, irrespective of which country we inhabit. So taking a look at what's happening in the Americas, we've always had this flow of drugs and people northbound, and sadly, guns and money southbound, right? And actually, the United States is the number one uh, country for money laundering, and a lot of it has to do with confidence in our economy, even though a lot of Americans are not in agreement about that. Um, and also the fact that we uh, dominate the U.S. dollar. And if you take a look at tons of transactions around the world, particularly in illicit economies, it's still actually dollar-denominated. And what we're going to take a look at now is a couple of the different factors. There's a lot of discussion about the drug war for the last 40 years. But what I wanted to actually focus on was how the gangs are um, actually not just kind of the middlemen and the transporters of drugs northbound, but also of people. Um, Armando and Evan gave you a really good overview of kind of how the gangs kind of rose up and their history and where they are now. But I wanted to actually show you how they're actually deployed here in the United States. 
Almost every community now in the United States has some sort of gang presence. And that's important to also discuss that there are not just Central American gangs, there are all types of different gangs um, in the US that exist. But what we're looking at today, obviously, is the phenomenon of MS-13 and Calle 18. They tend to be towards the border states. And sadly, too, it's been a vicious cycle. Because of the kind of waves of deportations that the US is actually engaged in, you've actually created a new generation and more actual recruits for the gangs in Central America. So you can actually see how gang membership has actually increased in what we call the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And sadly, too, with that growth of gang membership, you've actually seen these spikes in terms of the homicide rates. It's actually more dangerous to be in Honduras than to be in Afghanistan, which is something that's very hard to actually put your arms around when you're thinking about security issues. Um, and what we're seeing, too, is what are the real drivers, right? There's a lot of push and pull factors, but particularly it comes down to the lack of opportunity, whether it's educational or <coughs> probably employment opportunity. And people actually talk about how a 13-year-old in East LA, American, young man, young man who's perhaps maybe not very academically gifted, can also become susceptible to being recruited by gangs in his own neighborhood, similar to, let's say, his technical cousin in El Salvador. In the US, there are other opportunities. Um, and other avenues in order to, whether you join the military or the um, law enforcement, there are other different ways that youth at risk have that are not available, unfortunately, um, in uh, Central America. The other piece is very hard to leave the gangs. And we've actually started to hear about some isolated cases of children who have been, who have come to the United States and then been in those first waves of deportations in the last year who have become victims of uh, gangs because of their disloyalty or their idea of abandoning a country. And it's become a very uh, important social stigma of how do you get out of the gang, or more importantly, what could happen to you if you're trying to get out of the gang. And then we've actually seen uh, prison overcrowding. We actually talked about getting your master's or PhD in prison. The same thing happens in the United States, by the way, as it's happening in very overcrowded prisons in places like El Salvador, um, Honduras, and Guatemala. You've already spoken about the mano dura policies. Um, it's another question about if you're actually going to use violence and repression, um, you're probably going to receive repression back. And that's this other question of what's the vicious cycle. And sadly, we've had these waves of deportations uh, to Central America. What I want to also take a look at is, and these just show you a little bit um, how, and this, these are derived from the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, uh, basically the rates of homicide per 100,000. They have been moving in different levels, uh, but in general, we've actually seen unprecedented levels of violence. Uh, and this has been a push driver for uh, young migrants to come towards the United States, kind of, you either run towards economic opportunity, the entire United States is actually founded by waves of migration. Moving, in, moving towards economic or educational opportunity, or moving away from political conflict and violence. And what you actually have in the case of Central America is both at the same time. What I wanted to talk about, which has not been discussed that much uh, in our panel, but also in the media, is the fact that a lot of these children um, uh, are subject to tremendous physical risk when they're making a 1 to 1,500 mile journey, but that they actually start as being smuggled into the United States. Their parents or their family members will pay what they call coyotes or transporters, who will actually traffickers to get them into the United States. But a lot of times, they actually become victims of human trafficking. 
So just to give you some definitional terms and connotation, human smuggling is actually a crime against an immigration law. You're actually paying someone because you want to get from country A to country B, and it's paying for a transaction. Human trafficking is actually a crime against the person, where your human rights and more importantly, your personal liberties are actually uh, taken away from you. And sadly, it is what we call modern slavery. And how does it actually work? And why is it actually uh, taking place? And why is it very lucrative, not just for the Maras, but also for the cartels? Because A, they talk about human trafficking or victims of human trafficking as a renewable resource. It's actually less risky to traffic um, actual people as opposed to trafficking cocaine. The laws have not um, been updated to penalize people who are actually alien smugglers or traffickers at the same level you're actually trafficking kilos of cocaine. And sadly, too, we've actually seen a lot of it's for prostitution um, and uh, sex, uh, sex trafficking, but we've also seen in terms of forced labor. Um, and it happens around the world. And by the way, it's the second most lucrative crime, um, according to the United Nations, after drug trafficking. So think about that. There's actually a market for this type of forced labor. We're seeing here are actually the hotspots. There's a wonderful um, NGO called the Polaris Project that actually helps to rehabilitate um, victims of trafficking who've been rescued. to Try to give them the skills, education, um, mm -hmm. opportunities to actually kind of start a new life. This is a very important part of the laws here in the United States where now the victims of trafficking are not penalized. They're actually given safe haven. Um, and more importantly, there's an incentive to try to save and rescue people who've been trafficked. And Polaris Project is one of the um, NGOs that's actually quite active um, in this space. But we're quite fearful, those who follow um, human trafficking, is the fact that it's unclear how many of the children who are being um, brought or by these coyotes uh, towards the United States are becoming victims of uh, human trafficking. And the statistics are very difficult to find out. But I just want to raise awareness about the risks, not just physically of the journey, but what could actually happen uh, to these children. And that's what we've seen. How do you think about combating human trafficking? A lot of it has to do with education and social awareness. A lot of times these coyotes or these traffickers, they actually portray themselves as agents who are going to El Salvador to a remote area, saying that they're starting, for example, we have a new hotel that's being built on the Mexican Riviera and we need to hire maids and waitresses. And unfortunately, the families actually pay that coyote a fee in order to help their daughters, and a lot of times it is daughters that they're recruiting, to actually make that journey. Unfortunately, there is no job. That's not the job that's waiting for them um, at the other end. And that's how you become someone who is uh, kind of smuggled to being actually trafficked. And we have to think about the laws that are need to be updated in order to actually think how we can be as up-to-date and current in order to penalize those who are involved in this. And then lastly, taking a look at the networks. Because now you've actually seen drug trafficking cartels are now transnational criminal organizations. They've diversified. And we've actually seen groups like Los Zetas who are actually not as interested in drug trafficking. They've left it to the larger Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. And they're the ones that are actually moving people as a product as opposed to drugs. And how is this actually related then to the migration crisis at the border? So as of um, uh, last week from the, the Homeland Security Department, we've actually now uh, exceeded 66,000 um, unaccompanied minors who've crossed the border since um, October 1st of last year. Uh, so that's actually much faster. The rate has technically actually gone down the last three months because of the weather. It's like 130 degrees to cross the Sonora Desert. But it's also because the word has gotten out. 
that there are actually going to be deportations, and there's been a very active campaign by the U.S. as well as the Central American governments explaining that no, the rumors, they are rumors, that there's going to be an amnesty before the end of the Obama administration, and more importantly, that you're going to be actually sent back. The reason that the Central American um, children are actually allowed to stay and be processed in the United States is actually based on something called the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. And it actually took a look at the fact that these children that are coming from that northern triangle are at risk for being trafficked. And that's actually why they're treated differently than migrants who are underage from different countries. So you actually have this interesting convergence of all of the bad information that people are getting, this rumor that if you cross the border, you'll be able to become <clears throat> legalized or this path to citizenship. And sadly, the coyotes are using very sophisticated social media and campaigns and recruiting in order to get the fees for being able to transport people's children uh, towards the United States. And these are just to show you kind of where a lot of the crossings are. Most of them are taking place in the, towards the Rio Grande, that, that part. And this is where the national security implications come in that Jaime asked me to speak about. The uh, border patrol is overwhelmed, and you've seen this in the news, processing literally tens of thousands of children. What those of us who are in the national security sphere are quite worried about is that you have a lot of space that is actually not being monitored. And in this very heightened time that we're worried about uh, terrorism or attacks on the homeland, if I were perhaps an adherent of Al-Qaeda and thinking about how to come into the United States, there's a lot of opportunity um, uh, because of the distraction and more importantly the overwhelming uh, kind of responsibilities that the Border Patrol has in terms of dealing with these unaccompanied minors. By the way, too, a lot of these facilities were not meant to be dealing with children who are underage. Um, and we've seen the private sector and charitable organizations spend a lot of time and energy trying to help to um, uh, assist a lot of the relocation of these 60,000-plus children. So what are we doing in the United States in terms of trying to deal with this phenomenon, which is transnational organized crime? The Obama administration issued um, a national security strategy to combat transnational organized crime in July of 2011, <coughs> looking at how we, as a destination or a consumer country, have to change how we are looking at crime, um, but more importantly, trying to help other countries help themselves through a lot of intelligence sharing, capacity building, and trying to refine the way that we're actually attacking these networks of transnational uh, criminal organizations. And then more importantly, specifically for Central America, the State Department administers something called the Central American Regional Security Initiative. In the U.S. government, we always have to have acronyms, so that the, its nickname is CARSI. And what it does is take a look at a very comprehensive uh, approach from a security, education, socioeconomic piece. So let's take a look a little bit at how it was set up as part of Iniciativa Merida, which was to deal with the huge growth of the cartels in Mexico. But then it became its own program in 2010. And about $800 million has been actually uh, uh, allotted to this program since 2008. And this year, the State Department's asking for another $130 million in funds. Just in terms of the funding, um, Secretary Jay Johnson of Homeland Security earlier this week asked for $1.2 billion to help um, DHS manage the crisis of the migrant children. Uh, we'll see with Congress if any of these things are going to come to get together. That's actually a very small amount if we think about the president tonight will ask for $5 billion of assistance of a global counterterrorism fund. So it kind of shows you in terms of scale um, what we're dealing with. <clears throat> 
And then more importantly, just to finish up, I think let's take a look at these last five CARSI goals. First, taking a look at citizen security. Then more importantly, thinking about how to physically interdict a lot of these crimes that are taking place. Because a lot of these groups really cross borders and more importantly have these different connections. But sadly, as countries, we are kind of bound by our own sovereignty and our own ability to work within our borders. How do we actually forge alliances where we can actually look at the problem as a multinational approach? And how do we actually dedicate resources that way? And then the bigger thing is taking a look and seeing how the different instruments beyond law enforcement and military can be used to actually change the societal attitudes towards the gangs, then more importantly, create socioeconomic opportunities uh, to do that. And that's actually just to finish up. What we've seen is um, in certain parts of Central America, as well as in Mexico, by the way, that the private sector realize that it's an issue of national security and viability to themselves, that they need to actually think about how to engage the community and play a role to create economic and educational opportunities for the next generation. Um, to attract them, because they know that they're going to need a workforce in order to maintain their businesses. So how do we think of uh, keeping Central American youth that's at risk in their countries to actually help build the economies of their, um, their uh, countries of origin in the, uh, uh, in, in the instance? Just to give you a little bit of uh, the math about push and pull, about 17.5% of the GDP of El Salvador and Honduras comes from remittances, the majority of which come from overseas foreign workers, but technically they're not overseas. They're here in the United States. That's a significant amount of the economy. And we talk about brain drain. And the First Lady of Honduras spoke about how this migration crisis is actually a crisis that they'll lose a generation. So I just wanted to kind of highlight a couple of the things that we're doing in terms of trying to respond to this issue, but more importantly, why it's of interest to the U.S. national security establishment that these problems that may seem far away have direct implications on the streets of the United States. Thanks. Thank you, Selena. That was a superb presentation. I thank you for that. Uh, we'll now hear Ambassador Bosco Matamoros. Bosco is uh, considered the dean of Nicaraguan diplomacy. He has been, he has represented his country everywhere. When you talk to him, he has answers to so many things that uh, we don't know about Nicaragua and the links with the rest of Central America. So it's, uh, it's with uh, great pleasure that uh, we welcome Ambassador Matamoros. Thank you. I want to express my appreciation to the Hudson Institute, to Ambassador Darren Bloom, and also the presence of uh, old friends and new friends, which I hope they will be interested in the few remarks that I will make. Uh, I think it's very important what you have said, and I think it's a perspective from the United States in a certain way, um, from part of Central America. But I would like to make some uh, remarks which would be more brief because otherwise my colleague would be in difficulty. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's the fact that uh, we have made some generalizations which are very important, but I think we have to make some reflections about Central America and Nicaragua specifically. Nicaragua is the poorest country of Central America, and it has a GDP of equivalent of 60% of the Honduran economy. 
But remarkable, despite the fact that we have here concluded, or my previous uh, colleague, that poverty is one of the factors that produces and increases criminality. Nicaragua, even though it's the poorest country in Central America, has the lowest murder rate in Central America, together with Costa Rica. So how do we explain this paradox? Second, another consideration that I would like to make is that Nicaragua, like El Salvador, experienced in the 1980 a civil war, a conflict, in which both El Salvador and Nicaragua were involved in the confrontation East and West. How do we explain or respond to the issue that in El Salvador we have developed a phenomenon which is called Lamaras? And th there are no Maras in Nicaragua. What is the reason? One of the explanations, I think, would be fine in what Armando said. But also another consideration that I think would be important to take into account is the relationship that the Nicaraguan police has with the community, which is a outreach is a proactive instead of reactive. The second persuasion that I think in, we will find in Nicaragua and the security apparatus is that the traditional approach, which is super, super strong, I will call it super failure, does not work. And this is a, per, a problem that we have to face Central American in a broader perspective. For example, in the 1980s, the United States was engaged in the region. And when we ended the conflicts in the 1990s, with the peace accords and elections, the United States thought it was the, the end of the history in Central America in a paradoxical way, that there were not going to be more conflicts, that we were going to grow economically, and with free trade agreements, we're going to find a solution to the institutional social problem. What has happened 20 years later? In the year 2000, we see that we have free trade agreement. Nicaragua remains the poorest country. Before, we used to migrate to the United States for political and security reasons. Now, Central America is a transit point for drug trafficking and the potential risk of terrorism. But uh, Central Americans that are migrating to the United States, they do come here for the lack of economic opportunities. We feel that uh, the United States has forgotten the existence of the region, and as a result, we have seen the coming of a new presence, new actors into the region, which they offer different kind of opportunities from the traditional ones. We have on the one hand Russia, for example, in the case of Nicaragua, and the case of China. And at a lower level, we see the presence of uh, Iran that existed, but it has become a sort of rhetorical or historical uh, episode because after uh, Ahmadinejad left the presidency, there is no more basically Iranian presence in Central America. It has basically withered away. But on the other hand, we have a government in Nicaragua, which is what we call a democratic authoritarianism, which assures stability. It has a, 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 the dominion of the state apparatus, but at the same time, it has an agreement with the private sector, the trade union, and therefore he has guaranteed stability in the country. These conditions have made Nicaragua basically with Costa Rica and Panama one of the most attractive regions, countries in the region for investment, for security. And I think that we have to rethink this policy in terms of regional approach. CARSI does not offer a solution for Central America. It represents in a region of 45 million inhabitants, $3 per capita. 
<coughs> and with the amount of resources <coughs> that are moving through this traffic <coughs> is basically irre irrelevant. Doesn't offer the needs of opportunity, job creation, and the access to education that needs our region. In Central America, uh, we view the pro drug problem very much oriented by demand from the United States. And as long as there is not an integrated approach, we will continue to follow the trap, the, the, the security approach at the expense of the economic and social approach. That's one of the reasons why Central America, you may see in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, they, as a result of the U.S. resources and political pressure, they have that approach. But in Nicaragua, the government, because they have found a kind of alternative political thing, have a more sophisticated and complex relationship with this kind of problem. I think that the region needs a new kind of agreements. It needs something like uh, the Europeans received from the United States after the Second World War. It will be very important that there is a plan, a long-term plan, which will invest like a, a, in, a, in, a, in a time frame of five years, like $10 billion for development, education, and enhancement of the infrastructure. The continuation of the war on drugs with the emphasis on security is threatening the stability of the region. We have spent three generations fighting a war to keep the armies in the barracks. Now with the drug on war, we have seen the armies coming out to the streets, and there is a tremendous discretionality in a society where the control of a civic, a civic power toward, with the army is very thin. It will just lead to another wave of authoritarianism, which, on the other hand, will create the conditions that we fought in the 1980s to finish with them, which means in a certain way that the United States, which was engaged in the region for the establishment of democracy, for the establishment of a democratic process, for a market economy, is backpedaling uh, uh, back the objective that we found at that time in the 1980s. I believe that Central America needs a more uh, serious engagement on the part of the United States based on the concept of shared responsibility, but also at the same time with realistic objective in terms of resources and commitment to our country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bosco. That was... Uh, very, very enlightening. Now, uh, we will end the presentations with a presentation of Antonio Jose de la Cruz, an old friend of ours, and uh, he's Venezuelan, but uh, he's also, uh, to some extent, Costa Rican. And there is a reason for that, firstly. His wife, Roxana, <laughs> who is here, <laughs> Um, Antonio is an expert and he knows deeply well the um, PDVSA phenomenon in Venezuela and in Latin America. Uh, PDVSA, as you know, is the uh, petroleum company, state petroleum company in Venezuela. He has personal experience of a uh, couple of decades from, the, um, from being at a very important uh, echelon 
of uh, technicians of uh, that institution. And without any further introductions, we pass the podium <laughs> to uh, Antonio. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Darby. I will try to do it in five minutes, I will promise. <laughs> <laughs> I understand now why I am the last, because Ambassador Matamoro was presenting that there is a need in the region for a program like Le Marchal program in after the Second World War. So Petro-Caribe is a program presented by Venezuela to the Caribbean <laughs> countries, okay, <laughs> to help back them provide uh, credit financing for recipient states to purchase Venezuelan oil and products, okay, uh, which allow flexible terms to satisfy upfront payment and finance their loans, which vary to reflect domestic budgetary constraints. Okay, let's see some numbers quickly. If we see GDP, okay, gross domestic product, uh, unemployment and inflation in the region, and compared to Venezuela, who is the country who is giving that support, we could see that the GDP basically in the region was around uh, the growth, 3%. Um, taking that around, you will find that Venezuela was the lowest in that in the 2013 with 1%, and Costa Rica and Panama are the highest end. The, the rest are in the, in the same range. When you look at the percentage of debt of GDP, uh, you find out that the region is around 50%, which is around Guatemala is in the lower end. And the rest of the country, Salvador, probably is 61 and the high. When you see the size of the economy, which is uh, the GDP in billions of dollars, we find three groups. The first one, which is uh, Panama, Costa Rica, and Guatemala, are around uh, 45 billions. And the lowest rank are um, the rest, El Salvador, Honduras, e Nicaragua, 18 billions. Is as a side of economy. Venezuela, of course, is, is the biggest one with 10 times the mean of the top high end. The also, unemployment, which is important to see how it does impact, we, we find that the region is around 4.5, Costa Rica is, in, is, is a high rate. And Venezuela also. And the inflation rate, which is a tax to poverty, is around five in the region, while Venezuela is 56% last year. Okay, it's the high. So let's see the Central America matrix then, how the energy matrix, how it works, how, how it composes. So we have the numbers there we, on the left, we have all this source of potential energy here, okay, geothermal, bio, combustion, and waste, hydro, crude, coal, and solar wind on the left. And on the right, we have the, the, the supply and the demand on the stream. And in the middle, we have the oil products required. This, is, this project is developed by the Inter-American Development Bank, which is very interesting, because you could find here what the region is needing, and 56% the demand is covered by oil and products, okay? 
And when we see the in the right end, we will find that basically transport is hundred is the one is the the fifty percent of the oil products and is also in hundred percent used by transportation. Forty four percent in fifty three percent in industry support by oil. Residential is low seven percent and the commercial area thirteen and other seventy-eight. Taking that into account, okay, we see okay that is the matrix of the region. What is the opportunity then for the loan facility we have? We're talking about six six point two percent GDP for the region, around thirteen billion. Okay, and Petro Caribe, the only two countries who receive that benefit is Nicaragua and El Salvador. Last year account for uh, 39 barrels a day. When we see the scheme, okay, how it works, we have at the beginning, the, the program allows you to have, according to the loan term is 25 years, the interest rate is 2% per year, and there is a grace period of two years. According to the, the price for the oil, you have a combination of 60% uh, you pay in advance and 40% finance when it's in 50% dollar barrel. But nowadays, we know that we are about 80 or 100 for Venezuelan crude oil. So that means that basically the country is paying 50% and the Venezuela is financing the, the other 50%. So how it works? When you have, if it be on the top, you have the price for those years, 2017. 2008, 2016 projected, okay, what was the real price for the oil, Venezuelan oil, crude oil. So the, the, the country pay half, basically, and you see on the red how much will it pay at the end when you are paying the interest on the crude oil you received in the previous year. Okay, so at the end, the opportunity 50%. But at the beginning, but at the end is 38. You start closing the gap between the real price and the market and how, how much the government is going to pay for using this, or this facility. So since we see it, transportation is the one that the people is using more the, in the energy matrix for consumption. So let's see how is the price and for the people. If you see USA, it, I'm comparing this to the price you pay here in the USA to all the Central America. And we see Costa Rica is in the high end for all the use of diesel, of gas also. Nicaragua, who is using Petro Caribe, is also in the higher end, higher level. And El Salvador is more in the, close to the market in diesel, okay, and in the regular gas and also in the premium. And the rest, Panama, are close in the in the around three fifty and four dollar a gallon. So we see that at the end you are not receiving the benefit of you of having the help from the program. Okay. Is really an enabler? Okay. That is basically the biggest conclusion. I'm going uh, conclusion I'm gonna go the continued dependence on Petrocaribe has delayed recipient state migration away from high carbon 
and high cost fuel, oil, and diesel. Natural gas, okay, renewables, or other forms of, this, of distributed generation cannot compete with the credit-supported purchase of crude and products. Almost one-third one of Venezuela oil export are reportedly <coughs> not paying cash. El Salvador, for example, has paid for Venezuelan crude by exporting coffee beans to Venezuela. And Nicaragua also has done the same scheme. Petrocaribe has proven to be a diplomatic success for Venezuela, using the soft power to earn the political loyalty of many member countries in international and regional forums with emphasis on the organization of American states. The political cost for Caracas due to royalty deduction because the program made by PDVSA has been three billions per year. When you compare that to the subsidy to the gas in Venezuela, it's around 12 billions a year. That is nothing for the government. Petrocaribe has made the recipient state dependent on Venezuela oil and products and their future into continuous debt because it's 25 years, but it's continuing each year, so it's an endless debt. Hence, Petrocaribe is not an enabler to the prosperity of the region. And at the end, there is no such a thing as a free lunch. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. We have time for a few questions, and uh, with the advantage of uh, being seated here, I, I have two clarifications to request from, uh, first, Antonio, uh, both Venezuela and Argentina, the, uh, what the press uh, gives us is that the inflation is 60% or more. What are the, uh, is there such a thing as more precise figures on both countries? Okay, you asked me the yeah. figure for the inflation rate last year or this year? Because I'm, I put it 2013, that is the official figure for the Central Bank of Venezuela. Okay, but what happened is since they have control on the money supply, I mean dollar, US dollar, so they can control also the inflation because they don't represent the real terms of all the prices index. So that is actually, when you look some studies done by Professor Henkel, they say that actually in Venezuela the inflation is around 200, 180, okay, percent. And uh, I have a small question for Ambassador Bosco. <coughs> um, what's happening with the uh, Nicaraguan Canal that's uh, going to compete with the Panamanian Canal? Uh, the Nicaraguan Canal is going to compete with the Honduran, Guatemalan Canal, <laughs> Panama Canal. Uh, the question, I think, will be uh, when the works will start. As you know uh, very well, to build such a huge infrastructure, you need to build two harbors, one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific. And to build a harbor in the Atlantic will take about four years, so it will be out of uh, schedule to begin the construction of the economy. 
I think that uh, it's a very <coughs> complex decision from an economic perspective, from a political perspective. And I think in the region, my friends from Costa Rica will ask himself the same question. Everyone is wondering, not the possibility or the ecological impact, but where the United States stands in regarding this possibility. Nobody knows, and if somebody has the answer here, it will be appreciated. <laughs> Very good. Okay. All the questions are coming mostly from this side. Let me begin with the gentleman. My name, is, uh, my name is Peter Jesser-Smith. I'm a reporter with the National Catholic Register. And um, one of the questions that I had was, what is the role of the Catholic Church in fighting this problem and providing answers? I've heard from some people that the response has been mixed. I've heard some pastors say their bishops have provided them no support. And I've heard other people say well, there was great leadership with the, uh, the truce arrangement. Um, particularly with the military archbishop, which was kind of ironic. Uh, but then there's Father Antonio Rodriguez, who's just been arrested. So uh, what is the role of the church here, and what are some of the issues involved? How can it be a better presence? Okay. Uh, well, uh, the role of the church uh, was central to the negotiation of the truce in El Salvador. Uh, not only because of the um, uh, direct involvement of the military uh, bishop, but because uh, church authorities uh, were um, fine with, with that intervention. So, so it is seen, and in, in, in internal debate in El Salvador, uh, the government defends itself by saying, I didn't negotiate. This was an initiative of the church. Uh, we were only facilitators. And I, I don't know how far that go word goes. Uh, but, but that's what they say. So they say it was the church. Uh, I am not well informed as to what the role of the church has been in Guatemala or Honduras. I mean... Here, here, I think, again, you have an issue of institutions versus individuals. To the best of my knowledge, that the church, the Catholic Church, has not taken an official position, um, but what you have is, is a matter of, of individuals and individuals with certain authority. Um, so, for example, you have this matter of, a, uh, of Bishop Colindres, um, who has played and may play some future role under, under, under the current government. Um, you alluded to uh, to, uh, to uh, Antonio Rodriguez, the, the father who uh, um, you know was uh, you know, somewhat of an inter intermediator and and, and obviously uh, um, you know uh, 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 other roles. Um, I think as we saw with the role of the Catholic Church and social justice issues during the 1980s and, and 1990s, um, it's uh, the there's a, there's a, always that tension between the role that the church plays as an institution and the role that certain individuals play. And, and I think that'll continue to be the case under, under, under the current government. Thank you. Uh, Harry? Harry Luxner, Diplomat. Thank you. Larry Luxner from the Washington Diplomat. President Obama recently said he would delay any comprehensive immigration reform until after the midterm elections in November. And this is bound to disappoint immigration advocates who are hoping to see some immediate action on the issue. And I'm wondering how is this likely to affect uh, Central American countries, particularly with regard to um, 
this uh, crisis and with regard to uh, growing gang uh, violence. Thank you. Well, there has actually been a huge debate as to both, it's a very unpopular decision, it, take a look at it. Particularly, it's been very politicized domestically. For those who don't follow US politics, we're about less than eight weeks from very important midterm elections. There's a very clear calculation. Uh, actually, the uh, reporters that from Politico have actually done the math. That the uh, decision by the president to actually delay any decision on immigration reform till after the midterm elections is actually to buttress support for Democratic uh, candidates who are in really close, tight races. Um, in actually states where there are very few Latino voters, which is very interesting to take a look at it. All politics are local, but I think the bigger question for those who are expecting some sort of signal, and that's the real disappointment. Um, what we've actually seen, and I think is very interesting, uh, taking a look at Secretary uh, Jay Johnson's uh, speech earlier this week, was they were attributing the decrease, which is quite important. It's actually decreased quite significantly the last three months of the number of unaccompanied minors crossing uh, the border. And a lot of it's been attributed to A, uh, much stricter controls of the, um, the border, and also this question about how to inform and more importantly educate those who are sending their children uh, northbound. This idea that it is actually false that there's going to be an amnesty issued before the end of the Obama administration. And then more importantly, you saw this very visually with the first flights of the mothers and the unaccompanied minors who were actually sent to Honduras. And we've seen an interesting collaboration between the United States as well as the Northern Triangle governments trying to educate and raise awareness and more importantly dispel a lot of the rumors that the coyotes and the traffickers have been literally profiting from, um, as well as doing a lot more kind of intervention and in trying to explain how uh, they're taking money up front. By the way, if you don't know how the actual mechanics take place, so there's actually a fee that is when the child or the unaccompanied minor leaves the country and then there's a fee that's actually paid um, when they arrive. And there's a bit of big crackdown on the financing piece, which is an area yeah. that I take a look at a lot, the laundering of the money. There's something called funnel accounts that are being used and now they're being uh, pretty uh, vigilantly monitored where you actually send the money. The f uh, family members who are, let's say, in Guatemala or here in Maryland are actually sending money to the same accounts. And actually what you've seen is a very interesting multi-pronged approach to try to really attack the business part of the uh, smuggling that's been taking place. And I think the bigger question is, even after the election, people are actually wondering what is President Obama's position going to be? And more importantly, it's actually just kicking the can down the road as to what the next steps are. As you know, immigration reform is extremely complex. Um, almost every politician does have an opinion on it, but sadly here, the polls uh, reign, because you're so close to these very tight uh, midterm elections. And a lot of um, my friends who are a part of the Latino vote and quite vocal advocates are very disappointed um, because of this idea it's a crisis that's at our border that had, by the way, been the headlines of the news until the deterioration of the situation with ISIS in Iraq. It's almost like we don't even see the Central American migration crisis at all, except over the weekend when the president announced that he was going to postpone the decision. So I think it's a big debate that people have to have. And then more importantly, it's a really interesting time given that you have this space to really think of much more constructive overall immigration reform that addresses both the pull of economic opportunities here, but also this question of violence. We talked about how it's really two-pronged, where you're leaving because of the violence, as well as the lack of opportunity, and you're coming towards because you have family members here, a community that can support you. 
And then just on that, because you were talking about the role of the Catholic Church, it's been actually underreported here in the United States. Catholic charities and the churches here throughout the United States have been very supportive of trying to relocate and support the unaccompanied minors. And I think it's a story that's really interesting to see the role of the church in the United States of different faiths who have actually raised awareness. It's a security issue, but it's also humanitarian and a socioeconomic issue. These children are now starting school in very unknown um, uh, surroundings without the language capability, and then more importantly, the actual support, right? Going to school is a very big deal. It's all my friends in Facebook who have their children going to kindergarten for the first time are so proud, the two parents taking their child to school. These children who are coming unaccompanied are obviously not having the same experience. So I think it's an interesting question of how different parts of society need to get involved in what is an immigration debate, but in a constructive fashion. Uh, I'm sorry, somebody else? Yes. Uh, in Central America, we consider a resolution in the United States of the immigration issue a transcendental uh, a decision. The United States, on the other hand, cannot expect to solve the problem with piecemeal decisions. It has to be a long-term structural resolution that should involve a process of mutual learning, I will say, not only in the United States, but in Central America. Next year, there will be coming approximately over 80,000 children to the United States. In some cases, as a result of violence in their country, but in other cases, as a result of economic opportunity. I think it's about time that uh, the United States, not President Obama or the Democratic or the Republican Party, gets together with the Central American governments, with Mexico, in a joint effort to allocate resources for a long-term basis. Let's take into account that $20,000 creates a new job in Central America. And what was proposed is irrelevant. So we have to see this on a long-term basis and a process of learning. The Europeans have learned the question of immigration. That's where they are investing abroad in the near abroad, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Likewise, the United States could invest in Central America, so we will reduce that flux. It's only, not only a question of humanitarian, but a question of human rights. And we hope there will be a solution sooner than later. Yes. Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon from the New York Times and London Times. I'd like to ask Mr. Armando Gonzalez and Evan Ellis, how effective are U.S. sanctions to combat transnational organized crimes? And, um, and how can the rule of law be improved in these countries in, North, in, in Latin America so as to stop the flow of funds that go to the gangs? And what are your proposals? Well, the rule of law can be improved by respect to the law. Uh, many of the state reactions to phenomena like the ones we're talking about now uh, have involved uh, legal reforms that go beyond the framework of what is permissible by uh, the national constitutions. So there has been an abuse of the law, uh, not to mention uh, conducts that are directly contrary to the law by um, 
civilian vigilante groups or by the authorities themselves. And these conducts fall on both sides of, of the issue. Uh, there is complicity in some of the countries, especially in the Northern Triangle, of uh, police, uh, of law enforcement officials with crime. And there is uh, also illegal activities by uh, police and law enforcement officials against criminals. So uh, uh, what we have basically is uh, weak institutions, um, a lack of respect for the law and constitutional frameworks of what can be done uh, with the law to respond to these phenomena. And then we have um, um, bad behavior uh, that falls on either side of the fence by law enforcement uh, authorities. Uh, what can be done? Again, um, uh, we can't look at all of the region as one. I think Costa Rica has a better established uh, system, a legal system and judicial uh, system, which has developed for historical reasons um, uh, to the point that we have it today. Not to say there is no corruption in, in, in those institutions, we, we have it, uh, but I, I would say it's, it's the corruption that you would expect in those institutions in, in most countries. Um, um, but they are mature. Um, the problem is that in the rest of Central America, especially in the Northern Triangle, and I would also say Nicaragua, Ambassador, um, uh, the judiciary, uh, has not been able to mature in that way. As a matter of fact, in Nicaragua, it has been politicized by an agreement between the current president and the former president Aleman, uh, whose parties uh, share um, or take turns at uh, appointing uh, judges. So that's uh, a bad place to start from. Um, um, these, these institutions have to be strengthened, and uh, um, I think uh, that on that depends a good part of how we will fare in the future. Very good. One last. Just very quickly, and, and actually, I, oh, I okay. would also sure. in, invite, if there's time, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Selena Aurelio, to, to comment as well, because she actually has firsthand expert experience in applying these, these sanctions. Um, but uh, just a couple quick comments. First of all, the question, when we say sanctions, uh, against whom are, are, are we talking? And there's a question of whether sanctions or the threat of sanctions have ever been tried. We can talk about uh, states who have had very limited cooperation with the United States on, on issues um, to some degree, um, Bolivia, certainly Venezuela, et cetera. Um, you have cases in, in which uh, the, um, there's hampering because the cooperation has been incomplete. You have other cases in which uh, the cooperation is there, but uh, as Armando uh, points out, uh, there is our, uh, weaknesses in institutions. So you had a, a wonderful case uh, a, little over a, a little under a year ago um, in, in which uh, there were uh, financial sanctions against, I believe it was the Cachiros in, in, in Honduras. Um, and uh, when, they, when they went to sanction the accounts, the accounts were all empty because somebody had tipped them off to, to, to empty out the accounts. Um, 
and so you have issues like that. You also have issues of the new role of extra-regional actors, which the Ambassador Matamoros uh, alluded to before. And so um, when you're saying, okay, well, we want you to open the books on your banking system, we want you to provide a transparency on, on issues of trade and, and, uh, and, and reform, um, we want you to cooperate with, uh, the, you know, with uh, um, you know, port safety standards that we're trying to impose, especially in the Caribbean, but also Central America. Um, and then you have uh, countries like, uh, you know, countries like China coming in saying, uh, um, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll set up a, a $10 billion fund, no questions asked. Um, and it, it has systematically undermined in the last five to ten years the willingness of, of certain countries to cooperate in some of the places where it causes them the greatest discomfort um, with respect to the dirt of those institutions. Um, I'll leave it at that, but if, if Selena wants to comment. I think you're probably um, referring to the MS-13 uh, designation as the transnational criminal organization by the Treasury Department. It was actually an important first step, that's the application of this new um, strategy to combat transnational organized crime. MS-13, or the question of gangs, has always been regarded as a local law enforcement issue as opposed to a national security threat. The actual team that put together the sanctions list to designate MS-13, Mara Sabatucha 13, as a transnational organized crime, recognize that it threatens more than just the United States or El Salvador, and it puts it at the same level as groups such as the Mexican cartels, Hezbollah. Basically, the U.S. has different ways that we sanction and designate terrorist groups, drug kingpins, and now transnational criminal organizations. And that was a very important political and, more importantly, kind of signaling that these groups actually have tentacles far beyond kind of the local areas of influence that they had traditionally had. And then more importantly, it also affords countries who are dealing with the threat of uh, MS-13 to actually get access to much more assistance in terms of capacity building. So it plays a diplomatic and then more importantly a much more kind of technical role. And the way it works is that any accounts here in the United States that are found to be associated with members of MS-13 are then frozen. And if they're deemed legitimate in terms of they can actually be taken and seized. Um, and we're trying to actually replicate this sanctioning and the asset forfeiture in other countries. It's interesting because that's actually how you take the money away from the criminal groups and then actually can use it to help build capacity for the government. It's a very interesting way of uh, taking the money away from uh, these groups who are actually driven by profit and greed. One final question by the gentleman. Thanks for the forum. Uh, perhaps uh, sort of dovetailing tonight's remarks by the president and uh, tomorrow's anniversary of the um, uh, terror attacks here in the states. I wanted to ask the center panelists to look at um, how seriously and uh, and how focused this government is on um, uh, agents who would do us harm, being in league with, say, some of the cartels or some of the, uh, the criminal organizations either in Mexico or in Central America. As recently as, I think, a, a decade ago, there were some reports about uh, Chechens who might have been uh, in league with, uh, with the separatist movement there in Russia who were uh, uh, found in Mexico. Um, I don't know if they were in league with one of the cartels, but, I mean, it's, it's a matter of so much um, uh, uranium in, a, in, in an empty mug that's more than enough to do damage to some of the major cities in this country and even just uh, lone wolves or actors with their own agenda. So could you sort of look at that <coughs> piece uh, in reference to some of the slides that you guys put up? And thanks again. Sure. Um, and actually, that's what I've been spending a ton of time. So after I spend time with you all, I have to actually do a little work on ISIS and foreign fighters. So as you know, um, we've always been worried, and the, actually the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security 
uh, 10 years ago was to think about keeping bad people and bad things out of the United States. And that's actually why we're looking at the border crisis as being really overwhelming because we're dealing with literally tens of thousands of children while it's a diversion. And some people actually argue it might be actually a conspiracy by the drug cartels to give them the opportunity to have freedom of movement. At the same time, um, we're thinking about if you're just trying to figure out how to get to the United States, if you were a terrorist, you would actually hire one of these coyotes to help get you from point A to point B. Um, there's actually been cases of uh, Hezbollah operatives about two years ago in Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula, actually arrested. And we've actually seen um, elements of people who've been trying to tr try to pass the border. And there was an interesting scheme uh, where the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, allegedly tried to contract a Zeta assassin to kill the Saudi ambassador here at one of my favorite restaurants at Cafe Milano in Georgetown. <laughs> so the question is, we've always talked about um, September 11th, and reflected on it, that it was a failure of our ability to recognize how evildoers could really conceive of mass casualty attacks. And that's the lack of imagination. And then more importantly, these folks have a lot of time and energy on their hands to imagine very destructive acts that are also extremely well televised. And the bigger question, as you know, with the, um, the dawn of social media and the ability of these groups to actually gain an audience that they did not have 10 years ago because we didn't have Facebook and Twitter um, is something that we need to kind of figure out. How do we message and more importantly reach? It's also youth at risk. All of the same characteristics of young members who are basically recruited by gangs. It's a very similar psychological process for people who are going to become young foreign fighters and who end up becoming radicalized in whatever type of activity. And I think it's a question of now on the eve of 9-11 thinking about being ever vigilant. And this is a question about how we need to now educate. So my students who I teach at Georgetown, at George Washington University, they were eight on September 11th. That's an entire generation that doesn't really understand, see something, say something. They've heard it, but they don't, haven't internalized it. So I think in the, what we're trying to do now in the anniversary of 9-11 tomorrow is actually teach our children, our next generation, the importance of 9-11. And sadly, I think ISIS has picked a very interesting time. And more importantly, sadly, the president has to talk about terrorism again, 13 years since September 11th. And the same group, even though they're called a different name, they're inspired by the same radical interpretation of Islam that inspired the 19 hijackers who spent only a half million dollars to really change the way we look at national security here in the U.S. So I think the question of the citizens have to become the eyes and ears because the government no longer has the monopoly on providing national security. I think it's an important time to think about our environment. And then more importantly, it's so interesting because I literally asked my students, I'm like, how old were you on 9-11? Oh, I remember my parents came home um, really sad. And a lot of them are from the New York area at George Washington University. And they tried to explain to us what happened. And they only know it from a video. But they were in second grade. It's a very interesting question as to where, you know, we all know where we were on 9-11 and exactly what our reaction was. But there's a new generation that's not as in tune. Because uh, to them, it was a, it's a story or a documentary as opposed to actually a life experience.
I just want to also make a quick distinction. Uh, um, one is, is there's uh, threats, obviously, that come potentially from the region, as uh, Selena alluded to, uh, Lozetta's recruitment, and there have been some other issues with a, a, a cyber attack that uh, Univision uh, exposed, supposedly planned through the Iranian embassy in, in, in Mexico. Also, there was the, the, uh, the, um, the, the former mayor of, of Lyndon, Guyana, who was implicated mm -hmm. in the attempt to, to bomb the JFK airport from uh, underground. But there's attacks that come from the region. But on top of that, there's something potentially more significant, especially when we look to places like, like the Middle East, and this is probably more al-Qani and al-Qaeda than, than ISIS per se, but um, those are th threats um, that come from funding streams. Um, there are substantial populations with Middle Eastern connections um, who occupy uh, parts of the, of, of the trading regime, ever more important in, in Latin America. Of course, uh, famous through uh, area, areas such as the tri-border area, Ciudad del Este and Paraguay, et cetera. Um, but the issue isn't that all terrorist financing comes through there, but rather a certain percentage of the earnings um, are often sent as basically remittances from the often Lebanese or Syrian origin personnel from there um, to the Middle East. And not all, but a very small percentage, but it's still, you know, add up a couple million dollars, and we're talking about serious money, um, finds its way into, you know, basically um, charitable groups with, uh, you know, less than uh, legitimate purposes. Just one. Hello. Regarding your question, uh, I want to, I think we are entering also somewhat the realm of hypothesis, but uh, I, I will clarify the following. There is not one Central American that has been captured, detained, that has been implicated in some form of act of terrorism. Second, in the Middle East, there is not one Central American citizen which is involved in Syria or in Iraq. The nature of our societies, individuals may fight or get involved in a war, but they are not willing to commit suicide by any cost. And you can rest assured, I think, that it's very unlikely, unlikely and very improbable that it will be a Central American involved in any activity that you could characterize as terrorism. Uh, just a very quick anecdote, uh, which now ties into what the ambassador was saying about not uh, uh, being willing to commit suicide. Everybody remembers where they were on September 11th. I remember where I was on September the 10th, uh, late in the evening. I was at the last floor of the World Trade Towers with my two daughters, aged eight and three at that time. Um, the next day uh, happened what happened, and being a reporter, I was running south as everybody was running north. Uh, I was running south towards the towers to report for my newspaper. Uh, when I got home late uh, that horrible day, um, my eight-year-old daughter asked for explanations. And among the many things I will never forget about September 11th is the question she asked. Uh, when I explained to her that uh, these people had taken planes, hijacked them, and uh, drove them into the towers, uh, her a child's imagination could not um, stretch as far as uh, understanding that there were people willing to kill themselves to do this, these types of things. So what she asked was, Dad, and how did they get off? Thank you. Thank you.
We thank you very much for attending our conference this uh, this afternoon. And let's give a final round of applause to our superb team of debaters here.